If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're looking at the other side of the industry. We're looking at the non-gamer game side, the non-Euro game, the non, let's say, the games that don't take two hours to play. The games that maybe don't burn your brain and, and cause you to have a bit of an aneurysm because you're trying to do so much accounting and math and, and figuring it out. We're talking about mass market games. We're talking about games that you see in Target and Walmart. We're talking about games that you see in museums and tourist shops and bookstores and gift shops and things like that. And I'm so excited to be talking to Freddie Scott Valrath and Leslie Scott, both from Oxford Games Limited. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really pumped to have you on. Leslie, you are the designer of Jenga which is one of the best games ever made. And that's not just my opinion. That's kind of a consensus worldwide. Jenga is one of the, I mean, just favorite games ever. And you've been designing games for, for quite a while now. And then Freddie, your daughter, has come alongside you and is working with you at the company. And y'all are designing games together and collaborating on different projects and, and doing all sorts of really cool things in the gaming world. So I'm really pumped just to kind of get y'all's uh, experience and understanding of how Basically, the other side of the industry works. Most people that come on the show you know, are designing games that are very uh, strategic and complex and deep and take a long time to play. But you know, y'all are coming at things from a different angle, and there's just lots of other things to be thinking about. But before we get into that, who are y'all? How'd you get into game design and get into you know, working on games together? Leslie, why don't you go first? Um, well, I, I sort of fell into games design. Um, um, I basically grew up playing a lot of games and playing with a lot of toys. I was in, I grew up in Africa and my family were very sort of competitive about turning all our games and all our toys and our, our sort of playtime together ended up sort of being fairly competitive game session almost. I mean, not, not, not sort of necessarily traditional board games, but we would turn everything into, I don't know, how far could you, you spit a grape pip and this sort of thing kind of games. Um, and we we made our own games. I think a lot of families probably do that. And we had a game that we played that sort of evolved within my family, which was a um uh which was the game that became Jenga, but at that time it was it was just a pile of wooden blocks that um piled up on top of each other and and built up until it collapsed and these were blocks that belonged to my had been given to my much younger brother um and I think you know to be perfectly honest I, I took we didn't really think about it as being a, a a unique game idea we just thought that maybe that's what 
people did with blocks of wood, <laughs> children's building blocks. Um, so it wasn't until a great deal later, as I'm talking then about the sort of mid-70s, it wasn't until the early 80s, 1982 exactly, where I decided I wanted to start a business. And that was, that, that was the way it worked. I sort of thought, I want to start a business, I want to work for myself. And then I thought, well, what, what am I going to do with this business? And at that stage, I had had several sets of these blocks of wood, uh, block, this um, building block game um, made. I had, had several sets made, and I had played this with um, a, uh, with friends of mine who all said they loved it. And um, and I, I just, the, 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 if there was a penny-dropping moment to this, it was the penny-dropping thinking that this game didn't exist as a... As a um, you know, commercial product. It didn't exist, it, and it never existed as a game that uh, had been played um, by any culture. Um, and I thought, well, why not turn this into, um, a, you know, a commercial game? Um, and then, in a, then to a certain extent, then then the process started. Is you know, how do you turn a sort of handmade uh, a set that was a sort of handmade piles of uh, collection of blocks into a something you could sort of mass produce and, and, and put on the market. So in essence, I, as I say, I fell, in, I fell into this. It wasn't, I didn't sort of decide one, one day, or I, it wasn't like a sort of dream all my life as growing up that what I was going to do was become a game designer. And even when I decided to put the game on the market, I, if I'm, I have to be completely honest with you, I was totally naive about the whole process of, of um, taking anything to market, let alone a game into the toy industry and I knew nothing about the toy industry other than the fact that they had there were toy fairs where you um uh you could you know go along and and, and show your show your wares um so that's how I sort of got into it um I mean the actual the actual process of creating a, a game that could be made mass market um I mean that was quite a long process and I think any product that anybody gets involved in in making, people always want you as a designer of something to to pinpoint a eureka moment. And I'd say that I think there are very few successful products which have had just you know a eureka moment. There tends to be a long process between thinking that you might that something might work to actually uh, turning it into something that that has a real possibility of working. Yeah, absolutely. And now after you designed and, and started to, you know, get into the business and, and putting Jenga out into the world, mm -hmm. did you kind of get the itch and like, oh, I, I want to design more of these? Like once you kind of started getting some success, did it just lead into designing a whole bunch more? Well, yes. But again, that was actually, that happened a lot faster than, because Jenga was absolutely not a success to begin with. It was, it was a, um, I mean, I went to the toy fair with my, with the sets of Jenga that I'd had made for me, that I had you know, I had published, uh, manufactured for me. I'd packaged it. I'd, you know, I'd named it. I'd done all that you have to do in order to turn something into a product. Um, I was convinced it was going to be an overnight success. And I sort of sat there in this booth that had cost me an arm and a leg because I thought I was, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go in big. And I, I sort of, I, thousands of pounds later, I was standing there with my games. And I didn't, write a single order at that toy fair um what i learned 
very, <laughs> it was a very, very steep learning curve. I learned very quickly that to bring out something in a completely unknown product with no, I had no means of advertising and no advertising budget for the product. I was a one person business, also completely unknown. And I was trying to sell into the retail trade, who the first questions they ask is, I mean, if they're going to bother to open up an account so that you can actually, so, so they can place orders with you and you can ship to their store or, or multiple stores, they want to know, you know, what kind of advertising you've got behind this and what other, and what other products you've got. They don't have the wherewithal to deal with a one product business like I, I was at that time. So I very, very quickly realized that I needed to become better known in the, biz- the toy business and uh, uh, toy and games world. And to do so, I needed to design more, pro- more games and get them out there. So in a funny way, it was I got into the games design business, but uh, really to support a game that I had already put out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And can I tell you just how good it is to hear that Jenga was not a very big success at first? Like that's so reassuring because so often I feel like, you know, as a designer, as a publishing company, we look at these amazing companies, these amazing designers who seemingly had overnight success, mm-hmm. even though it's not true, right? <laughs> it, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success, yeah. right? And it's so good to hear that even Jenga, <laughs> one of the greatest games of all time, struggled out of the gate and you couldn't initially get people to even order a single copy. That's very good to hear uh, because <laughs> it means there's hope for the rest of us because obviously Jenga went on to become a bazillion, you know, copy seller and all that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And I want to dive more into that in just a minute. But Freddie, tell me about your journey. Now, you, I guess you grew up watching mom design games and go to toy fairs. And, and, you know, maybe you went along too. But tell me kind of your process of getting into game design and wanting to make it, you know, more than just a, a passing thing, but actually something you kind of devote to. Well, it's kind of funny considering that mom, yeah, is a, is a professional game designer. I didn't even think of going into the industry at all. Like I, I went to university to, just st- to study product design and one of the uh, modules that we had to take was design a board game. And it, it was kind of at that moment that it clicked that board game design was a thing. I don't know why I'd never really made this connection in my brain before that. Um, but I designed a board game at uni with some friends and then kind of put it in a cupboard for a number of years. And then I came back to visit mom and dad and I was rummaging around. I'd probably been told to clean up my cupboards. Um, and I found it and I showed it to mom and she said, oh, actually this this looks like an interesting game. Um, why don't you come with me to Chicago to the toy and game fair there to Shytag um, and uh, pitch it? and see if anybody else thinks it's interesting. So I did that. Um, A company called Martinex took it up. uh, And from that moment on, I was like, ah, game design, super easy. Like every game I design is obviously going to be amazing. Uh, They're all going to get taken up. Uh, Yes, let's go into this uh, full throttle. And mum was kind of like, whoa, calm down a second. Why don't you come uh, work with me and we'll we'll sort of um, revive Oxford Games a bit, and we'll I'll sort of take you under my wing, and uh, we can you can kind of like learn the ropes from me a bit. And I I did that. I sort of I started working with Mum 
must be like six years ago now. And, uh, and the sort of the first, I would say five years of that was mostly, you know, learning about the industry, working for Oxford games, not designing games to license out, but like working on our own company. And then about two years ago, we started designing games with the idea to, to license them out to other companies. Very cool. And how, you know, awful to have Leslie Scott as your mentor early on. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that just made things so much harder. <laughs> oh God, the shadow is so long. <laughs> well, that's true. That is very true. And I guess you have to kind of avoid comparing anything and just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be my own designer. Um, but yeah, that's, that's such an interesting and, and amazing story for you know both of y'all. And now you're working together and so cool. And I'm just, uh, I'm excited to pick your brains about you know these kind of non-gamer games and i don't know if that's the best way to say it. maybe mass market is just the best way to say it mass market games uh, and so i guess as we get into it let's uh, let's get some good like working definitions for what that even means and so freddie you know you've, you've got a lot of uh, experience lately in the mass market side and but then leslie you have a lot of uh, experience kind of in the gift shop side and the bookstore side and so i want to explore both of these angles and uh, before we get into the kind of the deeper things let's get some good working definitions freddie what does it mean exactly to design a mass market game? Like what separates a mass market game from other sides of the industry? Honestly, I don't know. Because I, I have I sort of struggle with the term mass market because mass market kind of presumes that the game is going to sell a lot. And there is a lot of mass market games out there that do not sell um, very well. And they do only run for one short print run. So I, I, I sort of, I have an, a sort of a vague issue with the term mass market because I, I don't know if it describes the kinds of games that I design particularly well. But I, I think you, you touched on it earlier that mass market is sort of the idea of a simple rule set, which then I would agree with the term mass market in that sense. Sort of rules no longer than, let's say, an A4 piece of paper. Everything can fit nicely with a couple of illustrations and then you get the the idea of, of what it is that you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be winning the game. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, also the kind of the theming comes into play. You oh, know, yeah. Definitely want a theme that kind of appeals to a, a wide audience. Now, do you have a, a different word or a different phrase that you kind of think about instead of mass market? Do you have another way of, of putting it? I'm sorry, I'm going to be a really bad interview. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't really. I don't really name what I do I think I just call myself a board games designer and then if somebody I think I sort of more say that I don't design hobby games than what the name what it is that I do design I think I would agree with that is that I mean I think I I would consider myself being somebody who designs games for um their tabletop games as distinct from computer games and they're often with a broad appeal but the games that I've designed, I mean, Jenga aside, the majority of the games I've designed have gone into what I would call a niche niche markets in that they didn't, again, apart from Jenga, they've never gone into um, Toys R Us or, or, big, or big toy stores at all. So, yeah, mass market, is it, it, it's an interesting definition. I, I think it's more a question of throwing it back to you, if we may, is to ask how do you define your games if they're... Uh, if you're if you're saying that they're not mass market, what is what is the market for your games? And then maybe what we would say is that the market for our games is something other than that. 
Yeah, it's a really good good question. I think, uh, Freddie, you, you mentioned hobby games a moment ago, and maybe that's a, a good way to look at it is like the hobby side of the industry, which is much more niche. You know, you, you can find these games, but typically only at a board game store. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find these kinds of games, you know, uh, in Walmart or Target. But at the same time, Walmart and Target and other big box stores are now selling hobby games, right? Mm-hmm. The, the lines are being blurred. And then as the gaming industry grows in general, you know, more and more people who normally would only play Uno would only play Monopoly. They're discovering Ticket to Ride. They're discovering Pandemic. Mm-hmm. They're discovering these, you know, what are called gateway games. And they're getting more into the the deeper side of the hobby where you have, you know, a, a 15 page rule book as opposed to a one page rule book, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so it, it is getting a little bit interesting. And, and maybe mass market is, is just not a, a great designator anymore. And maybe it's time to kind of start coming up with new ideas, right? As, as mass market changes uh, and you bring up a really good like ticket to ride has sold millions and millions of copies and you know people typically wouldn't say that's a mass market game but you know games that they would call mass market have only sold a couple thousand and so it's just kind of interesting uh, to think through the numbers side of this uh, and so maybe it is just a, about a an idea of like what kinds of games fall into this simple rule set you know very broad theming if there's any theme at all Right, a lot of these games just don't really have much theme. They might have some artwork that kind of lends towards a theme, but Uno, there's not much theme in Uno, you know. And so I think that's just uh, another way to look at it. But Leslie, so let's let's dive a little bit deeper into what you've been doing, working with uh, games that are going to go into museums and gift shops. Tell me about that, and, and like, how did you get into that side of the gaming industry? And, and let's kind of talk about some maybe some of the differences about designing those kinds of games as opposed to you know these other non-hobby games. Well, I very deliberately um, started targeting the gift shops, and particularly gift shops in in museums and in um, and and bookstores, basically because my experience with Jenga and um, my experience with other games that I I, I did design with a view to um, you know going to the more traditional outlets for games at the time, toys and games at the time, um, I. Realized that I was never going to have the the um, the marketing muscle to support these games, and you know, trying to get a game at the time into somewhere like Toys R Us was it, it was all about um, what kind of marketing muscle you had, and when one was designing games with that in mind, is you know, how was it going to fit on a shelf, and how was it going to um, how, how were you going to convince a, a committee of people to take the game and I thought I'm just going to move away from that entirely and actually to, to be honest I um, I think Oxford Games were one of the first companies to actually design games specifically for bookstores I can't speak about in the US but in Britain at the time bookstores only sold books and magazines and then they slowly started opening up to start selling um, other bits and pieces are the product including including games and museums at, at the time and I'm talking about in the sort of late 80s museums including the Smithsonian and the Met and and our, our own museums over here their shops their their stores and their um, I mean you know online wasn't a thing at the time so their stores that they were selling tended to be run by volunteer committees and then they suddenly um, was a moment when they realised that there was there's a lot of income potential in producing artefacts around museum and stores collection, 
and it coincided, and, and as far as I was concerned, that there the realization that there was a they should bring in professional people to run their stores and treat them as professional money making outlet um, uh, enterprises coincided with a time when I met somebody who was actually right, uh, behind running one of these organizations, and he asked me whether I would be interested in designing games for specifically for actually at the time was the Ashmolean Museum in, in Oxford. Sorry, I'm sort of jumping backwards and forwards, but you commented at one point that the, the kinds of games that you're talking about, the hobby games, they tend to be based around themes and you know, a game like Uno doesn't have a theme. Well, what was really interesting from my perspective was that when you're designing for something like a, a museum, you start with a theme. Um, and in this case, it was we started with the, the Egyptians collection within the Ashmolean Museum was the most visited part of the museum. So I said, well, why don't we design something for children around the Egyptian collection, the Ashmolean Museum? And then I, and so I had this theme. And around that, I then made a game based on the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And it's a simple game, but it's got a very complex, I mean, Egyptian hieroglyphs are, are very, um, <laughs> it's a very complex um, story you're trying to tell there. And I was trying to turn that into something where it was a, a child-friendly, simple game to play and beautifully illustrated. And that was it, it turned out to be an incredibly successful game for them, which we then put on the market independently, and it became a very successful game. We sold many tens of thousands of that game. And money then went to the Ashmolean Museum. They got royalties from it. And it started, started me down a, a, a route where I started to design games very specifically for museums or libraries or bookstores. And a lot of the games that I still have in the market, a lot of the the most successful games that we did for Oxford Games actually started with a theme. Yeah, that's so cool. And I feel like these kinds of games that show up in museums or or touristy areas of major cities or art museums or whatever, such an interesting intersection of kind of the mass market understanding of short rule set needs to be really fun easy to learn, you know, uh, under a certain price point, you know, you can't have, it can't be too expensive to sell in a, in a gift shop store or a shelf. But at the same time, you really have to have a theme because it's got to jump out to the person that just walked through the art museum, just walked and saw all the, the dinosaur bones or saw whatever. And then they see this, this little box for 1999 sitting on the gift shop uh, shelf and they go, Ooh, that, that looks like fun. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's such an interesting kind of intersection of simple, but yet thematic. And uh, yeah, I feel like it's a very, uh, just a really cool design challenge to create one of these games that kind of brings all these ideas together. Now, Freddie, have you worked on any of the gift shop or, or bookstore games as well? No. So um, my sort of job uh, when I started with Oxford Games was mostly to figure out how to sell these games. And we were getting some of the old, our old classics kind of like republished. Um, so mostly well, actually solely what I've done is design, when, when it comes to designing games, is to design sort of from scratch without a specific uh, market or museum or bookshop uh, in mind. So there's definitely been pulling ideas from thin air or giving myself, um, uh, what's it called, uh, parameters or sort of uh, not parameters. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, like rest- restraints. Yes, thank you. Or or, or uh, briefs. There we go. Briefs. Giving myself briefs. 
in what in uh, what it was that I wanted to design. Okay, well, let's dive into that a little bit because you're still designing for the non-hobby side of things. So tell mm-hmm. me kind of your process. Uh, you've got Slappy Camper, which came out earlier this year, which has a hilarious name. And I want to talk about naming these games in, in a little bit. Uh, but tell me kind of your process for creating these games, things you're thinking about, you know, some of the restraints, some of the briefs that you put on your, your process early on. Well, sort of where the ideas come from can sometimes be sort of quite difficult to pin down because sometimes they do just come from, you know, the your midnight ravings when you're lying in bed and a word is like going round and round in your brain. And I've I've got a game that I'm currently pitching at the moment that I think the name is genius. And that came from sort of me playing with a word in my brain and then trying to figure out how to design uh, a game around that word. And then other times I can, it, it can sort of be, you know, I'll, I'll play a game and then completely misremember the rules when I'm then trying to explain it to friends and then realize that that game actually doesn't exist. So is that a, is that a route that a new game can spring from or, uh, or, or just sort of, you know, seeing images in a magazine or things like sort of ideas come from very strange places. (laughs) I find that actually, even though I haven't designed games for museums, I find that going to museums can often lead to a a good idea because you're sort of, especially museums where there's objects. So you're looking at an object and trying to figure out what it's for. And I'm very much of the opinion that I don't read any of the little descriptions underneath these things because my ideas are far more interesting (laughs) than what the object was used for, which is, which is a bit unfair to the people who write those little things. But, um, it, it does it does give me ideas for games. Okay, and then tell me a little bit more about maybe the restraints. You know, earlier you said it, the rule set needs to fit on one sheet of paper. But what are some of the other things that you're you're thinking through? Well, um, so price price point is very important. Um, so you can't sort of start designing a game where you know that you're going to need lots and lots of little plastic pieces or um, lots of specially tooled things or, you know, bucket loads of cards if what the game ends up being is just a card game because there's that whole sort of value of a game. So people aren't that willing to spend, I don't know, £30 on a deck of cards even though there's a lot of cards in that deck. Um, So price is very important. Size is also important because you're thinking about shelf space um theming and then also age um sort of which bracket you want to go into when you're talking about uh, i suppose mass market games is the different age categories and then also if you want to design a party game and and what if companies are that interested in looking at party games at this particular period of time because there's sort of been a glut of them recently on you know um kind of cards against humanity kind of games there's too many of them out there now. So designing a, a, a that kind of style game, you're less likely to be able to license it. Um, and then, yeah, sort of looking at competition and seeing where there's a possible gap in the market. But that's, I think the thing with mass market games is that, yes, there's occasionally one that comes out that is very different from other games on the market. And that does very well, but often... You 
you're very unlikely to be the person who creates something very different for the market that then, you know, everybody like, again, like Cards Against Humanity, like Cards Against Humanity was kind of like the first people to do that, like dirty party game. But if you'd pitched dirty party games before Cards Against Humanity, you would have been told, no, thank you. We're not into that kind of style of game. So it, it's sort of like reading the tea leaves almost and and not sort of straying too far from the path, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. You oh, know, yes. Also games, games take so long to come out a lot of times. You know, I've talked to, I've got friends in the hobby side of the industry who signed a game to a publisher, you know, two years ago, and they're still waiting for the game to go into manufacturing, you know, and so a lot of times these things take a while. And so if you're really chasing trends all the time, it's even hard to hit on a trend because it take, takes a while for a game to get the art done and get the cards made and the boards made and the box and the shipping and like all that stuff. And so it's just something to uh, kind of keep in mind. Now, let's uh, let's look at a couple of y'all's games as almost case studies for things to be thinking about, you know, your design process, things you were you know, really looking at and constraints you put on yourself um, for the design of the game. Leslie, let's talk about Ex Libris which is a game you designed for libraries. And so tell me about that game and kind of how it came to, to be in your design process. And, and then we can also, in a minute, we can get into like, how do you pitch a game like this and all that kind of thing. But first, tell me about that game and, um, you know, how you created it. Well, that game came about because the Bodleian Library, which is the main library in Oxford, which is also, it's one of the major libraries in the country, in this country, were interested in me designing a game around books. I mean, obviously, <laughs> around books. And when I say they were interested in me designing a game, I've very seldom ever done a game actually actively to commission. What the arrangement has been is that, and this was the case, case in point here, was that if I came up with a game that they liked, they were prepared to sort of endorse that game for me, for Oxford Games. Um, Oxford Games would produce it and put it on the market and then basically the library would get a small royalty percentage for having endorsed the game. And we worked sort of with a number of institutions along that basis. So this game, it was very broad. It was, you know, a game surrounding books, but not a game that, I mean, my idea about it was that I had played for years. I played a game called The Dictionary Game, which which I think, I mean, you know, we just played it in the family. Um, I'm sure there's a commercial version of it, and I think something like Balderdash or and there's there's various games out there which and we loved this game as a family. We loved this this idea, which is you pick a word out of a out of the dictionary that is a very obscure word, and then people are asked to write a definition of that word. They're not trying to guess the real definition of the word. What they're trying to do is to actually write a plausible definition so that the rest of the players would hopefully pick your word as being the, the genuine word. And as I say, this is a game that we loved as a family. These, these kind of, for want of a better term, these kind of parlor games where it's you're providing the material, but I mean the game works as well as all the individual players' contributions work. And thinking about that, I, I, I just thought around the idea that with books... Ex Libris works on the basis that you will provide the cards in there, in which there's a plot, there's a title and an author and a plot summary of a genuine book. And players are then asked to write in one round, it could be the first, first sentence of that book, or in another round, it could be the, the last sentence of that book. And again, it's, it's along that theme that it's a bluffing game. And I knew from the start that this game was going to be the niche game. I mean, it's, 
you do not have to have read the books. In fact, it probably almost works better if you don't, if you haven't read the books. But it's not, it, it would be of a hard sell to try and sell this game to people who had absolutely no interest in books and, and in particularly in novels. So it was such a deliberate decision on my behalf that I knew this was going to be a slow burner because we weren't going to be able to advertise it. It helped for sure to have the, the, the Bodleian Library and the British Libraries endorse it. So it, it sort of sold through their, their stores. But there, there was no point in me pitching this to any retail outlet other than ones that were selling books and so on. And I never even considered taking it to one of the major games manufacturers. They might now be more more interested in it. It's it's got traction. I mean, it's got a lot. It's been out there since 1991. I mean, selling through through Oxford Games, and it, it's selling very steadily. Um, I mean, it's certainly worth reprinting it on a regular basis. But I still don't see it as a game that's going to you know get it have an advertising spot on the television or a, there is no wow moment to it which I think a lot of the the more traditional games manufacturers or toy manufacturers are looking for in a game but it's a you know I would say it was it was one of my it's one of my own personal favorites and it's um it's it, it's been a it's been a very successful game for Oxford Games and we've got a number of those so I think as a whole Oxford Games the games we publish we would probably sell over the years some of the games have sold maybe 10, 15, 20,000 a year at most, but we've had lots of them doing that. So it's, you know, we've been a, a successful business off the, by, by pushing in, into, the, into the sort of niche markets. Yeah, very cool. You know, there's an old uh, kind of online marketing phrase that says the riches are in the niches. <laughs> and the more you're able to kind of niche down and really focus on a certain demographic or a certain side of the mm-hmm. industry, whatever you're in, whether it's fitness or you know, board games, like whatever, that when you find that that kind of raving fan community, the people that really love what you're creating, whether it's, you know, bookstore games, or in my case, my company it really, right now is really focusing on solo games, you mm-hmm. know, games that you play by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to really focus on that target audience and give them the things that they want, because I'm not concerned about a three player uh, play group. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. making games for them. There's lots of games for, for three or four players. I want to make games for one player. And you're able to really niche down and do some really uh, cool things for, for that. Now, Freddie, let's talk about Slappy Camper, kind of a, a more mass market appeal, non-hobby game. Uh, so tell me your design process for that one, different things you were thinking about. Uh, I think you're, uh, I think it, it came out earlier this year and uh, is hopefully doing well. So tell me like the bigger picture about that game. Uh, yeah, no, it's actually it's actually done um, very well. I, I think uh, Mindware was slightly surprised because the the game sold out um, after I think it was two two and a half months on uh, on the market. So they so, no, so nobody's been able to get it for Christmas, which I'm slightly sad about. But uh, I'm very happy that they're they're coming out with a second print run at the beginning of next year. So I'm feeling sort of slightly smug. <laughs> Um, no, so Slappy Camper was an interesting one because I'd say that's the first game that I've designed from the sort of the very, like the, the final image of the game is almost exactly like how I pictured it, um, when I initially came up with the idea. So initially it was moving vans and you, it's a polynomial, if I'm saying that correctly, polynomial game, um, where you're, you're trying to fill 
your camper van with all your camping equipment and you 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 all have like a it's a, it's adorable like the final product is a a marshmallow stick like so a, a marshmallow on a stick and you're trying to like hit the tiles before uh, your opponents can and you're trying to fill your um your camper van and be the first person to fill your camper van but obviously the fuller it gets the more difficult it is to find pieces that will fit into the camper van nicely so there's sort of it's a, it's got a nice like ba- self-balancing mechanism in it so the, the better you are at the game the harder it becomes uh the closer you are to winning um so yeah so when i originally designed it it was a it was a moving van that you were trying to fill and apart from that the mechanics were exactly the same it's sort of i think i think again it was one of these games that came to me because i was playing around with words in my head so the sort of original uh, name for it was Wham Bam Slam Van. Because um, I just heard somebody recently say um, Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am. And I thought that that was such a cool title, like such a cool possible name for a game. And But how to make it, you know, a bit more child friendly. Because I, de- I definitely, with my game design, I definitely go down like the children's game side of the industry um I, because i think again you need to have simple rules and good graphics and sort of a catchy title um and i i'm sort of i'm drawn to that side um and then uh, do, do you want me to go into the, the the pitching side of it well let's talk about pitching in just a minute first okay. i want to continue talking about naming right mm-hmm. so you know you just talked about kind of the genesis of of that name um leslie i gotta ask where did the word jenga come from and like what what are your thoughts on naming these kinds of games well it's very interesting um i think i touched on the fact briefly that i grew up in africa and i grew up in africa speaking swahili and when i came to name this game I wanted a Swahili word to name the game with. And I and that came really basically because as a family, we called everything got a Swahili name. So Swahili word as a name. So our, our pets were, had Swahili names, as uh, uh, Swahili words as names. And Jenga means build in, in Swahili. It's actually the imperative of the, of the verb to build. So it, it means, you know, get on and build. And the second we thought of that, I thought of that name. I thought it's great, perfect. That's a perfect name. And I, nobody, unless you happen to speak Swahili, you're not going to know what this word means. So ultimately, down the line, it will. You'll say the word Jenga, and people will think of the game Jenga. And that that was that. I mean, that was the thought process. So I put, I put the game on the market myself, as I described. And several years, um, it was through my business that we were marketing it. I was managing it, and marketing. I mean, manufacturing it, and marketing it, and and taking touting it around and selling it, was seen by a marketing person in a large toy store in Canada, uh, Irwin Toy, when a friend of mine was demonstrating the game in Toronto for me. These guys from, from Irwin Toy saw the game and wanted it. They wanted to license it. And by that time, I realized I was, <laughs> there was going to be, I was never going to be able to get this game off the ground myself. And I was ready to license it out. And so the timing was perfect. They said they wanted it. I was actually up to my ears in debt. And I can I just remember this phone call where they said they they loved the game. They, they were absolutely going to put everything behind the game. But they hated the name. They absolutely hated it. And they said, 
it's crazy. You've got an unknown game. It sits in a box. It doesn't. It, there's no description of what is involved in play. There's nothing that describes what, what, how much fun there is to play this game. And you give it a name that is meaningless. <laughs> Nobody will know what the name means. And it, and it doesn't describe how you play the game. And actually, I'd, I'd actually called it Jenga, the perpetual challenge. And they said, you know, Jenga's a terrible name. And perpetual is awful. Nobody in North America is going to know what perpetual means. So we had there was this incredibly tense moment that I thought they were actually going to walk away and not take the game, not license, you know, the licensing deal would fall through. Um, so I said, okay, okay, you can drop the word perpetual, but I please keep Jenga. I I, I promise you, one day it's going to mean it's it's going to mean the game. And to give them the due, they agreed. They said, okay, fine. And then having accepted that it was going to be called Jenga, they embraced it. I mean, they, and they came out this fantastic television advert that was all about how um, they, it, it was a so, sort of song around the word Jenga, 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 Jenga. And then, they, and then at the, the end of the advert, it says, Jenga, the great game with the strange name. <laughs> and, and they even further embraced it. They did something which I thought was absolutely genius, which is they literally black branded the blocks with the name Jenga. So, yeah, that's, that's, how, why I, that's how I named it. And, and, and now people, they do associate the game with the name. I mean, the name, you say Jenga, and, and most people, who, um, unless you're a Swahili speaker, will, will assume, immediately assume you mean, you mean the game. So I was very lucky that worked out. Yeah, and it was like good on you for sticking to your guns in that one and saying, no, this is the name, and, and trust me, it's going to be, you know, when, when people hear that word, they're going to know. Because even now, when you have these knockoffs and they're like tumbling towers or, you know, they have all these kind of goofy names, people still say Jenga. Like if you go buy a knockoff Jenga, it's still Jenga, you know? <laughs> so I know. it doesn't carry that <laughs> brand or whatever. And Hasbro will jump on them like a ton of bricks. Cause, cause, because, I mean, that's, I mean, joking apart, that's one of the things that, it's incredible, and you, you'll know this, it's incredibly difficult to protect a game. I mean, to get a patent is almost impossible. I did try with Jenga, um, and I couldn't afford it to take, to take any further. Um, you can copyright the rules, but, you know, somebody only has to tweak a little bit, and, 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 and it's very, very difficult. To, the design, you can, you can obviously get to design copyright, but it's still difficult to challenge it. But what is, what is comparatively easy and cheap to do is to um, is to trademark a name, uh, to trademark a product, and Jenga is a very, very, very heavily protected trademark. I mean, luckily it's 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 completely out of my hands and to to have to police this. It's it's entirely Hasbro and 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 Pokenobi who are the people who took on the game. But if anybody has an and, they're, they're, and as you probably know, there are quite a lot of knockoffs of Jenga. But you cannot, you're not allowed to sell a game and even say that it's, you know, it's like Jenga. Officially, you're not allowed to. And, yeah. and, and Hasbro do come down like a ton of bricks on people who are doing this, you know, repeatedly or, or, or wantonly trying to sort of sell off the back of Jenga like that. The, the, the funny thing is, is that um, I would say that when I'm designing a game, when I've named a game, not a single one of the names that I've then sort of, uh, not a single one of the the names that I've given my games has ever actually been the name 
that they then take to market. So I, I kind of like let my, let, you know, lift my arms, wave my hands in the air and just say, fine, you can call it whatever you want. I bet I, I almost have like no input in the naming of my games. So completely the opposite side to mums. <laughs> well, I think, I think the thing is the difference was that I had spent three or four, five years, no, four, at least four solid years with a game on the, on the market and under that name. And oh, sure, I mean, I, you know, it wasn't selling in millions, but it was selling in, in, in a few, you know, several thousands, a few thousands of games have got, had been sold across the world. And I, what I did not want was for, um, I just, I, I was just totally committed to it in a way that I think Freddie would possibly agree with me is that when, when you're de- designing something very deliberately to then take it out and to license it out to another publisher, there are all sorts of aspects about it that you don't, you, you have to be ready to allow them to, if they're going to make the investment behind it, they will want to make changes. So it'll, it'll, it'll suit their market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you cannot, if, if you want to get into the sort of the licensing side of the industry, the, these games cannot be your babies. You have to be able to hand them over and just wait to see what happens with them. And I mean, I, have, I've, I haven't had an experience where they've, anybody's done a bad job because, I mean, obviously, why would they actively try and do a bad job when they're trying to make money from it? But you, you do just have to let go of the reins. And it's actually quite freeing. And I think that's what I like about that side of the industry is you just you just let it go and move on to the next thing. And then whatever will be, will be. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's keep talking about publishing and licensing and that kind of thing. Uh, Freddie, tell me about pitching for you know the non-hobby games, the mass market side of things. What does that look like? Where do you do it? How do you do it? Can we, give me just kind of the big overview of the process. Well, I I kind of break my year up based on three events that I go to. So I go to Nuremberg and pitch there. I go to um, this this sort of it's a new thing based in London called Mojo um, uh, Mojo Pitch, where uh, you can arrange to meet with, and it's specifically a pitching um, confer- conference. And uh, then Shytag, which is now called uh, People of Play. And that one is my biggest one. That one's brilliant. That's the one that sort of got me into the industry initially. And that, again, is specifically for professional board game designers to pitch to companies who are actively looking for games. And they'll put you in touch with this massive list of people, not board games and and um, uh, toys as well, and also like plush and ride-ons and all sorts of areas of the toy market, but I, I specifically focus on the, the the people who are who are actively looking for board games. And then you, over the space of I think it's three days, four days, um, you pitch to I would say usually on in at that conference I'll pitch to about forty or so companies. So I use these three fairs, conferences, pitching. Uh, events as my like what I I want to design x number of games up to that time and then I will take those games and pitch them to the companies that I'm seeing there now how do you get in the door like how do you like is there a, a application process or do you need an agent or like how do you even get in to see those companies well for for uh people of play so pop this this uh one in Chicago um formerly known as Sh- Shytag 
they have two branches to it. So there's there's one branch where um, if you're a newbie designer, so you haven't got anything in the market or you don't know anybody in the industry, you have this, it's effectively like speed dating. So uh, there's a there's a couple of days of like conferences, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, conferences. So you're, you're watching talks about the game industry from people in the game industry. So like big guys like Hasbro, Mattel, um, Spin Master, all those guys will be giving talks about the industry. And then you'll have a, an allotted period of time where you expect effectively like speed date. So you'll have a, a table with your product, with your game or your toy, and then they'll come round and you give them the lowdown on it. Um, and then they'll uh, say, that they're interested and then they'll give you a business card or they'll contact you afterwards and then for a professional uh, game designer you you basically just buy a ticket to the event um they, they they do you know a bit of a background check to make sure that you're actually legit um and then they give you this incredible list of names of uh, and contact details of companies and then you just arrange your your meetings um in chicago and then you you can also go to all these um talks um that are happening as well so it, it's a phenomenal resource for um people within the industry and for people who want to get into the industry i i highly highly recommend it very cool. And then Leslie, how do you go about pitching a game to a library or a museum or a, a gift shop? Like, what do you do for that side of things? Well, interestingly enough, it probably take the same route now. Um, I mean, in the times when I was doing it um, in the past, I mean, basically because I had games, you know, every time I had a game, it made it much easier to then sort of approach people and say, look, I've got this game. I've, I've done this game. Would you be interested in me doing a game with you? Um, so... I mean, I'm sure you know this too, is that once you've got into the door once, it's a lot, and, and you've had a success once, it's a lot easier to get in. Otherwise, it's it's incredibly difficult to get, get through that door and get to see the right people. I would say now that that all the, um, the bookstores and the book publishers and those sorts of companies who are designing, who are, are publishing games for those outlets are all at these same, um, same three events that Freddie has just been talking about. I mean, certainly certainly I've seen them at, in Chicago. I, I don't tend to go to Nuremberg any longer or, or go to the Mojo one in London unless I'm actually talking about games there. I mean, I'm one of my, unless I'm one of the speakers. But, the, but in Chicago, there's an awful lot of publishers there who focus on sort of historic games or, or, or publishing works for historic outlets or for bookshops or so. It's, it's become in a certain way they've just become a branch of the same industry it's there isn't this sort of two hugely separate outlets any longer okay that makes a lot of sense now what advice uh, leslie would you give someone who is trying to pitch you know obviously wear deodorant and, and don't smell bad you know <laughs> uh, brush your teeth in the morning you know obviously the basic kind of things but anything more specific that maybe someone wouldn't know right off the bat maybe more of a nuance kind of thing to know going in I, I'm going to hand over to Freddie for that because she's honed this down to such a fine art now. So, Freddie, I mean, how do you pitch <laughs> when you're um, going to see somebody? I'd say, I'd say that the most important thing to realise is that they will be seeing hundreds, if not thousands, of, of ideas in the space of 
um, those couple of days or or even in the space even if you're talking about the whole year they'll be seeing hundreds of that or thousands of games that you're competing with so you don't take rejection as a bad thing i mean yes it feels bad but it's a numbers game in a way like yes you have to have good games but you also have to realize that even if you've got a good game it maybe doesn't fit at exactly the right time with a company that you would feel that it fits with. So you just want to see as many people as possible. And that kind of translates into your reaction with these people uh, that you're pitching to. It's friendly. It's sort of don't come across as desperate, which is a, which is a sort of an easy thing to say, a harder thing to do, but just sort of say, oh, I've got this number of games that I'm showing to you. They fit into this, this, and this category. Um, Are you interested in seeing games from all over the categories or is there anything that you're specifically not looking for? Um, And then I would say what the most important thing is, is to have a sizzle, which is effectively a trailer for your game. So it's it's a little video, no more than... 45 seconds to about 70 80 seconds so really short really like a trailer and you're not you're not going over every single rule in the game but you're sort of demonstrating what about your game is fun what about your game is like the hook of it um and then sort of you know a couple of examples of how various parts or the parts that you find most interesting in the rules you're sort of demonstrating those and just show them that video and at the end of that video say well i've i've got these i've got a pdf of the rules would you like to have a quick look over those and i highly recommend especially if you're doing simple games um is to have illustrated rules not like pay an illustrator to do the rules but but sort of have like little diagrams of you know when you play this card on top of this card and then a big red x like you can't do that or a big a green tick if you can do that to like really um, show it visually sort of because uh, I would say a lot of people within the industry, including myself, were very visual people. So reading rules, yes, it's our bread and butter, but we like nice shiny pictures. And then you'll often you'll often hear from people, no, that's not what we're looking for. And you just move on to the next sizzle or video. Uh, if you will, and the, at the end of that, just say, okay, so I'll I'll send you this, this, and this video along with the rules, and then you wait a couple of months to hear back of whether or not they actually then want to see a prototype. I mean, so, sometimes you will have people say, oh, that looks really interesting. Can you please show us the prototype now and let's play, you know, a half a half game of it, depending on the amount of time that you have with them. But how I work is that I'm and I, I'm, I, I tend to do, I have a, a, sh- a small number of games to show each time. So I'm showing between four to 10 games in effectively half an hour. So really these sizzles are the only thing that I actually get to show. And I don't get to demonstrate the game in that space of time. And that's why you then send them the videos and then they come back to you after showing it to their teams about whether or not they actually want to get either a print and play copy of it or an actual physical copy that you then have to send them. Very cool. And that's really uh, good advice. I really appreciate you kind of giving us a look behind the curtain 
on this thing. Uh, well, ladies, this has been excellent. Let's talk closing thoughts. Leslie, what would you tell someone who is thinking about or maybe actively trying to get into this side of the market, this kind of non-hobby side, mass market, gift shop, bookstore, whatever uh, area? What would be your like encouragement to them? What would you tell them? I would say for sure, try it. I mean, if you think you've got an idea that works, is different or different enough, um, give it a go. And don't. And, and, and I think slightly as Freddie says, don't be downhearted by rejection. Listen to the reasons why somebody, um, that particular company has rejected your idea. If they've rejected it for an idea that is very specific to their company, take it to another company and show them. And then... Be prepared to to make changes according to whatever criticism you've heard and be prepared to just shelve that idea for a while if necessary and go on to the next one. Don't get totally caught up in, in, um, I mean, if nobody's shown any any, um, interest in your idea, there's a reason why they haven't. And it may not be that the game's not any good. It just may be that the timing isn't right for that particular game. But stick with it because it's a fun industry to be in. It really is. And it's, it's highly competitive. But if you're up for it and you're up for a bit of risk taking, it's, it's a really fun, fun industry to be in. Absolutely. And Freddie, what would you add to that? I kind of uh, agree with uh, mum on this one. I think, yes, um, get used to rejection, get used to it quickly, but not in a bad way. I mean, sometimes having a meeting that where they don't like any of the games is just as useful as having a meeting where they're really positive about all the games. And I'd also say, um, once you get your foot in, it really does open up for you. There are places that are like, like shy tag or people of play where you are just sort of thrust into this world and, and you build up your email list and, uh, you can, I mean, these these people, it's their bread and butter. They, they are actively looking for games. So they will also contact you and ask you if you've got anything new to show them. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm trailing off. <laughs> I think when you first get into this, you, you need to be realistic about the fact that even once a game is taken up, in the in the so as 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 we described the so, the so called sort of mass market, you need to have other resources, other income, a day job for a while. It takes a while to build it up until you're going to realistically be able to um, to, to live off income from a, from a game that you've licensed out, which is why I think people are often tempted to go into the sort of self-publishing of games. Uh, it, it looks like there would be, there, there could be higher rewards. You can invest an awful lot in that too, and and lose a lot in that. So I would say, you know, go for it, but be be prepared to spend a few years before you would actually be in a position where you're going to be um, supporting yourself through through um, games design. Oh, absolutely, yes. You 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 need to have sort of three or four, maybe five or six, depending on how uh, lavishly your lifestyle is, to actually uh, sort of games published. I'd say a year. Or, or ones that sort of, you know, get republished, that tick over nicely to actually live off the royalties of them. So yeah, as 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 Mom was saying, it's it's you don't you don't go into the industry for money, that's for sure. Unless unless one comes up with a Jenga. <laughs> yeah. 
Definitely. Well, really quick, uh, Freddie, tell me where people can find your games online. Uh, so you can find uh, Oxford Games at Oxford Games with an S dot uh, co dot uk, and we're we're selling um, our games through that. Uh, we we ship worldwide. I highly recommend them. I specifically recommend uh, Anagram, which is an, a genuinely one of my favorite games. It's a it's a word game, um, and it's it's brutal. It's fast paced. You're stealing words from other people and turning them into anagrams. And uh, it's one of those lovely games where you shake a fist at somebody and then plot your revenge. It's brilliant. And that that is one of the games that mom invented. So I'm probably sucking up right now, but uh, <laughs> I do really like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, ladies, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate y'all coming on the show. Good luck with all the games that you're working on and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?